Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and I thought it would be nice to just have a chat today, just you and me. It's November now, and the weather is starting to get a little bit cooler, and frankly, some of my favorite previous episodes of this show are some of the old ones when it was just me, a pile of research, and a story just for you. And I'm pretty lucky that I stumbled into this one kind of on accident, and I think it's a pretty good one. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of nature, and a certainly fascinating tale of the early days of colonization in Florida. It is very satisfying to me, both as a listener to podcasts and as a creator of podcasts, to feel like you're hunkered down to a story and just digging in. That's something I want to do more of, and something I think we could enjoy together, especially in these late autumn days. So I'm excited to tell you about this story. So that's what we're going to do today. This story is about an old road, a very old road. Nowadays, Florida is covered in a net of highways. A friend of mine from Colorado was recently lamenting the density of highways in Florida, and I agreed. I went on to rattle off the highways just in Greater Orlando. There's I-4, the 408, the Turnpike, the 417, the 528. If you go west, you reach 75. If you go east, there's 95. There are so many that I'm not even mentioning. Florida is just dotted in highways and byways and long state roads that stretch through county upon county and seemingly infinite scenic highways that weave along beaches and forests. There's a thousand ways to get anywhere in Florida. The wilderness conquered by pavement and gasoline. But three centuries ago, as the European colonizers began to put down their roots along Florida's shores, they struggled to find ways to reach each other that wasn't by boat. Trains were a century out, and horses could only handle so much. There needed to be a way to reach one another by cart. There needed to be a proper road. There were obviously many roads in towns in Florida already, especially St. Augustine, but that's not what we're talking about. We need to be able to get to each other, a a, a highway, a way to connect. That needed to be on the table if this colony, which is what it was in the time that we're talking about, was to prosper. As you'll soon see, many of the roads that were there were nothing in comparison to the road that was in the process of being built as we join our story. That road is called the King's Road. Britain had acquired the land of Florida from Spain in 1763, after the Seven Years' War left Spain battered and bruised. Britain and Spain were both involved in a segment of the Seven Years' War called the French and Indian War, in which Britain got a lot of success out of the result of that war. They were now a serious contender along the Atlantic coast, with colonies all the way up the coast and now Florida under their control. St. Augustine, a city we now consider to be classically Spanish in its style, was now in the hands of the British, and things began to change in rapid succession. A man named Colonel James Grant became the first governor of the new land that was called East Florida. If you recall, Florida was split along rivers near Tallahassee, and that became West Florida. Everything east of that, of modern-day Florida, was East Florida. James Grant was born in 1720 in Scotland. He was a major figure in the British military by the age of 24. 
In his work during the French and Indian War in the mid-1700s, Grant worked with many major figures of the soon-to-come war of American independence, including George Washington. He went to the Siege of Havana at the end of the Seven Years' War, and soon after was given the title of Governor of East Florida. He made St. Augustine his home, moved into the governor's mansion, and began to rule the colony from there. It was August of 1764 when Governor Grant took position. He had the difficult task of luring comfortable northern British colonists down to the untamed wilderness of Florida. Now, we talk about that concept all the time, how difficult this land was to traverse for colonists when they first arrived to this peninsula. The native peoples of Florida had developed all sorts of means of travel through their millennia of life here, including canoes that could slip through the low-lying waterways with ease. When the Spanish first arrived and the British followed, the persistent water, the overabundance of animals and insects, and the constantly growing underbrush took over any chance of developing a clear path. That's the kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about pre-development Florida. When there's water lying in every groove, when there's plants that grow so quickly up and over your structures, these colonists couldn't make anything that lasted because it was on unstable soil or on areas that wouldn't last very long or just being swept up into the nature around them. The roads developed in St. Augustine up to this point were shoddy and falling apart. Governor Grant wanted to change that. If trade and expansion were to be part of Britain's plan for Florida, a proper road needed to exist. Profit from plantations using enslaved Africans was a huge part of the British economy, and it was Governor Grant's task to bring more plantations to the colony of East Florida and surge the economy. But how? This path needed to connect all the way up to the St. Mary's River, the border between Florida and Georgia, and all the way down to St. Augustine and eventually on to Jacksonville and maybe even further down to cities along the East Coast, but we'll come back to that. What sort of route could be constructed? Well, a planter named Jonathan Bryan agreed to chart the course and on horseback, he traveled between the border and the two major Northeast cities. It was clear, based on his trip, that this was going to be a huge task. The prevalence of cypress swamps meant that loads of bridges needed to be built for this to work, and the road needed to be wide enough to allow coming and going. Now, that was not a thing that the Florida land could accommodate. There was just nothing like that. The budget for this project proved to be its main stopping point. Jonathan Bryan's route was going to be far too expensive, and so was Governor Grant's plan. There was no route that would not require loads of bridges, loads of dredging, and all sorts of construction through difficult areas that they just couldn't maintain. The plan was on the rocks, but Governor Grant had someone in his corner who had an idea. He was the lieutenant governor. His name was John Moultrie, and though Governor Grant's name is tied to the early parts of this task, it is John Moultrie who really brought the old King's Road to life. How we got there, however, is, of course, a little complicated. John Moultrie said that he actually knew of a very successful route through the East Coast wilderness thanks to a friend he had made. He called the man Grey Eyes. Grey Eyes was apparently a cattleman who drove cows through the brush along an ancient trail. Grey Eyes himself was Creek, and, quote, probably part of the Alachua people under their leader, Cowkeeper, end quote. 
Moultrie called Grey Eyes, quote-unquote, his Indian friend. Grey Eyes had traveled with his cattle through large portions of Florida, the same way Creek cattlemen had done for generations. The ancient trails that they blazed were laid before them, and Moultrie could use Grey Eyes' skill to chart the course on his behalf. Moultrie was in dire need of securing a plan for Governor Grant to continue his path down the King's Road, but another group was also in need of a proper route. You may recognize their story. One, Dr. Andrew Turnbull specifically saw the necessity for connecting these cities and routes. It was in his greater business plan that that worked. He had traveled across the ocean to the Mediterranean to pick up thousands of laborers from the nearby islands in said sea. He wanted to build a new town here in Florida, and he needed the human power to help do it and citizens. These folks would become known as the Menorcans and would become a major population in this region of Florida. Turnbull brought 1,400 of these Greek and Italian individuals over the Atlantic. We discussed them in our episode about Talamato Cemetery last October. When the Menorcans came to Florida, they arrived at St. Augustine and followed a path down to New Smyrna, their brand new settlement. The path they took, according to Governor Grant's documentation from the time, was blazed by the one and only gray eyes, who apparently used his skills to avoid low-lying wetlands and brought the new laborers on foot safely to the new settlement. It was successful this one time, but without gray eyes, the route between the two towns was evidently impassable, which proved to be a huge problem sooner rather than later, because... Those Menorcans that Turnbull brought over to our shores were not so happy with the conditions that they were living in. A revolt broke out in 1768, and British troops who had agreed to help Turnbull had to support him from being overtaken by his Menorcans. The path, however, to reach him was terrible, and the troops could not make it down to New Smyrna in time. Turnbull was in danger. The revolt, however, was tamped down, but the situation could have been avoided if a road had been built, a proper one that the soldiers could traverse. Turnbull began calling for improvements alongside other builders and planters along the East Coast. Plantations run along the East Coast were asking for better access to neighboring cities and states, and the governor of East Florida was inclined to agree. With this pressure, at his back, Governor Grant really wanted to put something into motion. His Lieutenant Moultrie had good ideas, but they weren't moving fast enough. It had been several years since Grant and Moultrie got their jobs, and all that time they had been promising this road, and it still wasn't done. It hadn't even really started. And then they met another setback, one that actually proved useful in the end. Governor James Grant was only in his early 50s, but he suffered from several unspecified medical conditions. I can't seem to find any documentation of what he was dealing with. Maybe something from his time in the military service. Either way, he had estate issues to handle back across the pond and required treatment for whatever was ailing him. In 1771, he returned to England to sort out his affairs. While there, he was able to meet with those in charge of the advancements that he was hoping for, and in 1772, Grant made an official request for proper advancement of the King's Road. 
Florida was expensive, as it still is today. But somehow, someway, he got approval and sent along the good news to Moultrie, along with approval of a budget of 1,200 pounds. There needed to be, quote, causeways, bridges, and ditches, end quote. All the sorts of things that made this plan a little too expensive earlier. Now he had the budget. Moultrie just had to execute. There were many swamps that needed to have bridges over them and many highland paths that needed to be paved for easy cart movement. Grant, still in London, left Moultrie to the task with a frankly hilarious warning included in the letter saying that Grant would visit the project in November of 1773, a little over a year after the letter was sent. Grant said to Moultrie, quote, if there is a stop or a bad step or an insufficient bridge, there will be no living in the house with me. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> I love that. Basically, basically what he's saying is, if, if there's anything wrong with the road, if the road doesn't work, he's fired. But the phrasing there is so funny. If you mess this up, we are no longer roommates. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very good. I like that. Anyway, soon enough, <laughs> soon enough, Moultrie set into motion, quote, the first major public works program in Florida history. End quote. So, so what that means is that this isn't just a road in one town or, or a road in, say, a military encampment. This is a road that's going to be used by everybody. This is not just going to be used by British military or the, or the plantation aristocracy. This could be used by anybody. This was a road. This was, you know, a state road. This was a legitimate thing. So if we think of this as the first time that uh, one of the colonists, one of the Europeans did a project that could benefit a lot of people. This is the first public works project in Florida. That's what this thing was for better or for worse. That is where it stands in history. This road could serve everybody. If it went well, this road could be like a connective tissue for all those along the East coast. Moultrie now had the budget and one hell of a task ahead of him. plantation owner named Robert Bissett took up the next big task of bringing the road from St. Augustine down past the rivers that crisscrossed that area and toward New Smyrna and Andrew Turnbull. So long as Turnbull would build a bridge on his end connecting the settlement to the road Bissett was making, the plan would be successful. So Bissett got to work. Enslaved Africans under his ownership did the physical labor, clearing the brush and laying the route day by day through the Florida summer, through the new year, and into the summer of the following year, 1773. Around this time, Governor Grant left his post as governor of East Florida and decided to run for position in British Parliament. This meant that there would be a new governor of East Florida. His name was Patrick Tunnan, but Moultrie was still in charge of this project. There was no slowing him down now. Months surged by, and the Florida wilderness was beat back at last, until by 1774, the King's Road was reaching completion. Those who drove its path noted how wide it was. Free of natural obtrusion, easy to traverse from town to town, Moultrie was so proud of his handiwork that, I'm not joking, he bought an airy carriage 
That's the exact word he used in his letters at the time. Airy, as in wide open and able to enjoy the Florida weather and, and his beautiful drive along the avenue. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. And in 1775, the road was done. From the Georgia border on down to New Smyrna was now one route ready for carriage, foot, or hooves to come tromping down the Atlantic coast. The road really was a titanic feat for its era. I'll read you this quote from my main source for the research here, a document called The Kings and Pablo Roads, Florida's First Highways. It was prepared for the St. John's County Growth Management Services by one Paul L. Weaver. It is an amazing document. I'll include a link to it because it's it's even more in-depth and goes into a road called the Pablo Road, which we'll have to discuss another time. But but here's the quote. This, this really shows how huge this project was. Paul says, quote, measuring 16 feet across with ditches and pine logs laid crosswise in the wet portions and causeways through the swamps and bridges across the many creeks and rivers, the commodious King's Road beckoned to migrants from the northern colonies, end quote. 16 feet across. I mean, that's that's pretty big. I mean, it's not as big as a road nowadays, but that's significant for the time. Moultrie had finished the job set to him by Grant a decade ago. The King's Road was now complete. Did you catch the year I said back there? 1775. Things were let's say not looking too good for the British colonies at that time because soon after the King's Road was completed, the War for American Independence broke out. Seeking refuge and security from the revolutionary soldiers, loyalist British colonists needed safe space. East Florida was still a haven for those loyal to the crown, so those fleeing the revolting colonies rushed into East Florida. There was even conflict along the northern edge of the King's Road with British soldiers and revolutionaries battling along the St. Mary's River. When the war was over and the British had lost, Florida was returned to Spain via the Treaty of Paris. Those fleeing the colonies rushed south to hop on boats, many of whom would become the Conks on the Bahamas in the years that followed. When the Spanish came in and brought their citizens with them, they trotted down the King's Road and filled in the gaps. According to accounts from the time, the road, which was the feather in John Moultrie's cap, began to fall into far less pristine conditions. It became less and less sublime as more and more time passed. The route remained, but the Spanish didn't care much for it. It became the route for those being given land grants by the Spanish who were trying to repopulate the peninsula with their own people. One document presented on the website of the Flagler County Historical Society shows a land grant that calls the King's Road, quote unquote, public road, making it just the most obvious route through much of the area. That's all it was. It was just a public way to get between areas. It, was, it wasn't the King's Road anymore. Plantations still used the route to send their crops up and down and back into Georgia. When the War of 1812 broke out, soldiers flooded along the route, bringing troops to conflict, and when Florida was given to the expanding nation of the United States of America less than 10 years after the War of 1812, those in charge saw that the King's Road, soon to be called the Old King's Road, had been worn out by usage in the last 50 years and had fallen into near total 
disrepair. They'd need to fix it, but by 1821, when Florida became a territory, the old King's Road had been swallowed up by Florida nature and returned to its natural form, wetlands and forests engrossing much of the path. It had returned to what it had once been. When I started this show a few years ago, I spent large portions of my days driving around Florida, searching for stories from sunrise to deep into the night. I'd drive around far away from my home, pacing the Everglades or the Ocala National Forest or the Indian River Lagoon, looking for bears or panthers or orange groves or any sort of story I could write. I haven't done that as much as I want to in the last year or so because, frankly, I love research. I love talking to people. I love putting stories together. And frankly, getting lost for a story doesn't quite hold the same appeal as it used to. But every once in a while, I do it. I go out and just see where the road takes me. It's a satisfying thing to find a story kind of on accident. The roads I traverse are how I get there. I love the long hours I spend in my car listening to podcasts, heading towards whatever awaits me, but as with all things in my job writing about Florida, I am faced with an unfortunate balance. Because there shouldn't be pavement that carves the Ocala National Forest into quadrants. There shouldn't be a highway that splits the Everglades in two so that I can peer out over the wetlands, but I can't change that. It brings me close to the places I love, but also destroyed them all those years ago, part of the grand legacy of the King's Road from so many years ago. Obviously, the King's Road didn't need to be the first road that then led to Alligator Alley, but it's hard to not see the connection. The King's Road was first, and now everything else followed. It's just an anxiety that follows you around, the same anxiety that Aldo Leopold wrote about in the Sand County Almanac all those years ago. The closer we get to nature, the more we can love it, but the closer we get to nature, the more likely we are to leave our fingerprints, and not in a good way. In the case of the old King's Road, there is a good lesson in that balance because another thing I see out on those long drives are ruins. Everywhere you go, you find buildings, structures, roads, returning to the flora. The vines overtake them, the grass grows over the floor, the ferns sprout out of every opening, the forest just takes everything back. It always does. But the old King's Road did not go away forever back in 1821. It was built back by the end of that decade. A new road would be built along a similar tract to the old King's Road following much of the same route, though nowadays most of it has been covered up and turned into towns and better roadways over the following 200 years. One segment of the old King's Road still exists and is still drivable in Greater Daytona. Obviously it's pavement now, but it follows the same route that it did way back in the 1770s. The area around it is fully developed now. No sign of the nature that once engulfed this region, the impassable, unstoppable forest that terrified so many British military men. The same forest, the same wetlands that prevented them for a decade from even charting a proper course is now strip malls in Daytona. 
This nature that was so difficult for them is just gone now. Wiped out. Even if we brought it back, it wouldn't quite be the same. But I've seen the ruins of Florida. The old King's Road has as well. The old King's Road has had many periods of rise and fall, and another fall, likely eventually in the future. We know that for certain. The wilderness comes for everything in the end, whether that's in a decade or a century or in a millennium. That road has turned back to the forest once. It's only a matter of time until it does so again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you were here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, you are picking a pretty good place to jump in. We are at the halfway point of this conservation season, so there are some really great stories behind you that you can go and listen to from the last month or so all throughout October. And there are some really exciting stories on the horizon. I cannot wait for you to hear what I've got in store, and I cannot wait for you to hear the second annual Wait 5 Minutes holiday special I'll tell you more about that in the future. But if you're looking for episodes similar to this one, I mentioned basically three episodes that are kind of directly connected to this story. There is the story of the Menorcans, which you can hear in our episode about Talamato Cemetery. There is the story of East and West Florida, which I discussed in the episode called the 14th Colony. And there is the story of the Conks, which I talked about in the episode called Ambassador of the Keys. Go check out those episodes. There's links in the description to all of those. I am so so proud of those past tales that all kind of weave together the tale of this era of Florida history. So go check those episodes out. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of previous episodes. I am currently working on getting last season and this season fully transcribed so you can go and read along with the episodes if you would like or suggest them to someone who would like to experience the show that way. There's going to be photographs from trips and photographs from research and YouTube videos and links to everything you need to see to get a full experience of these stories. So hopefully by the end of the year, all of those will be updated, if not by the beginning of next season in February. So go to WFMPod.com to see what we've got so far and keep checking because there's a lot of stuff that is coming on the horizon. You can also now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, especially because I have some big ideas on the horizon. 
But I want to know what you want to hear from this show, especially in the coming year. Tell me what you want to hear. I want to know what stories you want more of. Tell me. I am genuinely asking. WFMPod at gmail.com. Reach out. I tend to respond pretty quick. All right. Next week is a huge episode. One that I am absolutely thrilled for you to hear. You're just going to love it. It's a big one. One of the first big stories I wrote for the show is about the Indian River Lagoon. It's one of my favorite spots in Florida. It's just amazing, but they are having a bit of a crisis right now. One that many experts have been working for years to help resolve. But right now, whether you knew it or not, the manatees of Florida are experiencing a massive die-off. We're losing manatees at an obscene number right now. So I got in touch with the journalist who introduced me to that story. His name is Max Chesnes. I hung out with him for a day and visited many of the locations that he goes to for the research of this story. And I got to see firsthand what's going on at the Indian River Lagoon with the manatees and with their seagrass. This is an amazing story, one you have to hear to believe. So tune in next Monday. I am so thrilled for you to hear this story so that you can know more about this genuine catastrophe that is happening in our peninsula's waters. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, look into it to help your community around you. And if it's time to get your booster shot, look into it to see if one is available to you. I realize that I haven't been including a link to booster shot information, so I'll be including that in the episode description as well. And of course, as always, drink more water. Have a happy November. I will see you next Monday.